This exam covers the Reformation period and a little bit of the pre-Reformation period. And so we start with the pre-Reformation. As I say there at the top, because there are so many different items that you need to be familiar with, how is it that you can keep all of these things straight? Uh, I encourage guys to kind of see it big and keep it simple in terms of the way that they study for this exam. So I would not recommend that you learn 50 different details for every single item on the list or when you get to the exam all of those details will converge and you will have trouble remembering who did what. I would encourage you to identify one or two significant aspects about each of the items on this list and then also make sure that you're able to distinguish the items on the list from one another because when you get on the exam they're going to all be sitting there on the right hand column and if you don't remember what distinguishes one from the other, it will get very confusing very quickly. So see it big, keep it simple in the sense of identify the main things that make them important and be able to tell them apart. So uniqueness and uh, significance. Yep, David. Exact dates, knowing exact dates. Yeah, my take on exact dates is this, that I often include dates as part of the questions in terms of uh, an informational piece. So we might say in something like in 1509, this French reformer from the city of Geneva was born. So the date would be part of the question. But there's other information in the question that you could answer the question even if you don't remember the exact date. So the answer to that would be John Calvin. Um, so I, I include dates in, as part of the questions, but I don't require that people memorize specific dates in terms of keeping all the dates straight. If, I have if, if you need to know exact dates, they will be part of the study guide. So there are times when I do have guys memorize dates, and I always include them as part of the study guide. Pretty much what I have given you here on this study guide, um, pretty much, there may be one or two exceptions, but pretty much what I've given you here on this study guide is a list of all of the possible answers that you will see on the exam. So what that means is, uh, for example, when we get down to um, even the Genevan Reformation, um, where is it? Way down here. Um, I've got guys like Wolfgang Capito uh, in, the, uh, in the list. It's like, well, why did you put him in the list when we really didn't talk that much about him in the class? He was one of the reformers who was working with Martin Bootser in Strasbourg when John Calvin was there. Why is he in the list? Well, because he's on the exam as a potential answer. And so I try and put all of the potential answers in my study guide so that when guys get to the test they don't feel like I've been unfair with them when they see things in the list that they didn't see on the study guide. Alright, All right. pre-reformation. We talked about Peter Waldo. Uh, Waldo of course was a preacher from the 13th century from the 1200s who was converted through his study of the scriptures he actually had the scriptures translated into the um, common language there of the region where he was from in southern France. And uh, his followers were known as the poor men of Lyon. 
They sold all of their possessions and they preached publicly even though the Pope didn't allow them to. And they were known for prizing the authority of Scripture above the authority of the Pope. In fact, Waldo, the reason he got the name Peter, which is more of a nickname than a first name, is that after the Pope denied him permission to preach, he determined that it is better to obey God than to obey men. And so he acted like Peter did before the Sanhedrin there in Acts chapter 5. So initially, the followers of Waldo are known as the poor men of Leon. And then later generations of Waldo's followers become known as the Waldensians. And the Waldensian movement continues in southern France and in the Italian Alps for many generations until the time of the Reformation. And then William Farrell actually goes down from Switzerland, meets with Waldensian leaders, and the Waldensian movement officially becomes part of the Reformation in the 16th century. John Wycliffe was the great Oxford scholar of the uh, 1300s, the 14th century there in Oxford, England. He and some of his fellow Oxford academics translated the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. Wycliffe in particular translated the New Testament into English. His followers were known as the Lollards. And uh, Wycliffe opposed papal corruption. He called the Pope the Antichrist. And he was protected uh, by some of the powerful members of the English monarchy. But after he died, the Catholic Church dug up his bones and burned him in effigy. Very, very important figure in the pre-Reformation, known as the morning star of the Reformation, because so many of his ideas that Christ is the head of the church, that the Bible is our sole authority, and that the gospel is by grace through faith, they become foundational truths during the Reformation. The Lollards are his followers, and the name itself refers to the fact that they would often preach publicly or even sing publicly um, the gospel, which would have included many portions of the scriptures having been translated into the English language. John Huss, or Jan Hus, as it's more correctly um, spelled and pronounced, but John Huss was a Bohemian reformer, just a generation after Wycliffe in the late 1300s, early 1400s. The English queen uh, that had been there in Wycliffe's lifetime was actually from Bohemia, so there was a large transference of ideas between England and Bohemia at this time. Bohemia being the area around Prague, the modern-day Czech Republic. And John Huss was a professor at the University of Prague. He adopted Wycliffe's ideas, most significantly the headship of Christ, that Christ alone is the head of the church. Huss preached in the language of the people at the Bethlehem Chapel there. Eventually in 1414, he was invited, or summoned is a better word, summoned to appear at the Council of Constance to uh, give a defense of his views. He was promised safe passage, but when he got there, he was arrested. And after about 10 months of being in a dungeon, he was put on trial. The trial lasted 
about a month, and then he was denounced as a heretic, led outside of the city, and burned at the stake. He died in 1415, and that was roughly a hundred years before Martin Luther would nail his 95 theses to the castle door. So the Council of Constance was where John Huss was burned at the stake, and it was also the council that put an end to the papal schism that uh, we talked about mostly last semester. Uh, the Hussites were the followers of John Huss, and uh, that movement took on something of not only an, um, an evangelical, certainly gospel-oriented faith system, but it also uh, sometimes resulted in armed conflict with Catholics, and there's lots of interesting stories about the clashes between the Hussites and the Catholics. But in any case, the Hussites are the followers of John Huss. I did not put the Moravians here on our list, but eventually the Moravians will trace their theological heritage back through Huss as well. Uh, Girolamo Savonarola is the Italian reformer in the city of Florence who was killed in the 1490s and uh, represents a very early uh, attempt at reform just a few years before Martin Luther even during Martin Luther's lifetime, but before the 95 Theses. Uh, Savonarola taught the free justification by faith. He sought also to um, impose moral reform on the city of Florence. He was opposed by the Medici family and by the Pope, and eventually he was hanged and then his body was burned. Jacques Lefebvre, Johann Reuschlin, and John Colette, all three of them are early humanists. Jacques Lefebvre is a French humanist involved in the translation of the Bible from the original languages into French. Johann Reuschlin, a German humanist who recovered the study of biblical Hebrew. And John Colette, an English humanist, influential at Cambridge, influential in the life of a later humanist named Desiderius Erasmus. Humanism, of course, religious humanism at this time, is the recovery of the study of religious documents in their original languages. So the study of the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, no longer in Latin. Desiderius Erasmus, then, is the prince of the humanists. He was Dutch, but he actually was in England for quite some time. And... Uh, <laughs> really three significant works that Erasmus produces. He published The Praise of Folly, which was that critique of the Roman Catholic system, Roman Catholic corruption, which we read some of. And then The Freedom of the Will was essentially Arminianism before Arminius, where Erasmus taught a semi-Pelagian view of soteriology, that man has an ability to cooperate and participate in his salvation. Uh, but most helpful, um, the freedom of the will is not helpful. The praise of folly was semi-helpful. The critical Greek New Testament was very helpful. And this is where Erasmus took the best Greek manuscripts available at that time and produced a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which was used as the basis for both Luther and uh, Tyndale's translations of the New Testament. 
All right, any questions on the pre-Reformation period? Yep. When was Savonarola? Yeah. He uh, was in the late 1400s. I believe it was 1499 when he was killed. Right around there. Yep. And then uh, for Jacques Lefebvre, uh, you said he was an early humanist. He was French. And was there a third thing? Uh, he helped to translate portions of the Bible into French. And actually, one other part about Lefebvre was in the early 1530s, Calvin, before he wrote his Institutes, actually met Lefebvre. And historians believe Lefebvre had a significant influence on Calvin and that that influence is even seen in some of the things that Calvin included in his Institutes. All right. The Lutheran Reformation. Martin Luther. Um, there's a lot of things that we could say about Martin Luther, but in terms of most significant things, certainly the 95 Theses posted in 1517 would be highly significant, a response to the indulgent system of, um, well, of the Catholic Church at that time. Luther had entered an Augustinian monastery all the way back in 1505, and his confessor at the monastery had been a man named Johann von Staupitz. And we talked about how Luther was very introspective, fearful, constantly confessing his sin to the point where von Staupitz told him to stop it. And that's a way to remember who von Staupitz is. He was the guy who told Luther, hey, stop it, stop it. Um, so Johann von Staupitz eventually becomes an ally really to Luther's Re Reformation efforts there as one of the Augustinian um, monks at the <laughs> monastery there in Erfurt. So Erfurt is the place in Germany where that Augustinian monastery was where Luther entered in July of 1505. Yep. Uh, how much did he back Luther? Like how long did that go? You know, when things started to really heat up, but did he still back Luther? Uh, as my understanding, and I, I haven't, I haven't studied that transition in detail, but my understanding is, as Germany became Lutheran, many of these Augustinian monks also became Lutheran, and they become kind of that initial wave of the German reformers. Uh, we even have like Martin Bootser, who's not Augustinian. I believe Bootser was Dominican, um, but we have this kind of conversion of these men as they see this truth. My understanding is that von Staupitz was one of those who becomes a supporter of Luther in that process. But, but how that transition all took place, um, I don't know all of the details on that. That would be interesting to, to learn more about that. Uh, the city of Wittenberg, of course, is where the university was, where Luther was teaching. And it was here where the 95 Theses were posted. They were posted on the castle church door on October 31st, 1517. And so Wittenberg becomes the city where Reformation really begins. Of course, we understand that the Reformation is something that was a process that took many centuries of time. But when we think of the Reformation exploding onto the scene, Wittenberg is the place where that starts. 
Philip Melanchthon was a fellow professor there at the University of Wittenberg. He becomes Martin Luther's most trusted co-laborer. I was going to call him his sidekick, but uh, I guess that's a way we could think of Melanchthon. Uh, Melanchthon's uh, Luther is very much the preacher and kind of the zealous prophet. I mean that in, a, in an Elijah sense of the word uh, of the Reformation. He's the one who's boldly going out and kind of uh, taking the world by storm. Melanchthon has a less radical disposition in terms of his personal demeanor. He tends to be more of the systematic a uh, theologian who helps to systematize Lutheran ideas. After Luther dies, many Protestant evangelicals feel that Melanchthon kind of took Lutheranism back in a direction that was not a good direction, one that had more compromise with Catholicism. Uh, there's some debate on all of that, but in any case, Melanchthon helped to systematize Lutheranism both during and after Luther's death. In fact, it was Melanchthon who presented the Augsburg Confession at the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. Indulgences. Indulgences are the whole reason that Luther wrote his 95 theses. Um, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Just yesterday, uh, Dr. MacArthur received a letter from somebody who was composing a new set of 95 theses uh, for the church today. He wanted to write another 95 theses for the 500th anniversary coming up. Uh, I suspect that won't be the only person who tries to do something like that. The irony, I think, is that people think of the 95 theses as this great charter document of Reformation belief, when really all the 95 theses were were 95 reasons that indulgences are bad. So God used them to spark Reformation, but they're not this great summary of Reformation doctrine. Luther himself was still in a transition period of leaving the Catholic Church at that point. He had become a true believer just a few years before that, of course. But the 95 Theses really were 95 reasons why indulgences are wrong. Uh, cardinal Cajetan was the Roman Catholic cardinal who in 1518, right after the 95 Theses were published, was initially uh, dispatched by Pope Leo X to try and kind of quell and end this Lutheran problem. So it was initially an attempt to handle it all in-house, and Cardinal Cajetan was the first, and um, he condemned Luther, uh, though ultimately he didn't have the force of what the Pope will bring later in 1520 with the bull of excommunication. Johann Eck was the one who debated Luther famously a year later in 1519 at the Leipzig debates. And um, it was Eck who got Luther to acknowledge that Luther appreciated and affirmed the work of John Huss. And as a result of that, Eck felt as though he won the debate even though Luther was able to overwhelmingly show from both Scripture and the Church Fathers that the Pope, in, that the Pope had assumed a level of authority that was neither biblical nor the understanding of patristic church leaders. Uh, Leo X was the Pope. 
when all of this was going down, Leo X was the one who ultimately authorized the sale of indulgences that allowed uh, Albert of Hohenzollern. Um, oh, I skipped them, didn't I? How did I do that? I don't know how I did that. But in any case, we'll go back. Albert of Hohenzollern was the cardinal in the region who specifically had, under the Pope's jurisdiction, uh, uh, authorized the sale of indulgences through Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was the monk who went from town to town saying, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so like a 16th century televangelist with a praise-a-thon that went from town to town, we have Johann Tetzel selling indulgences, which is why Luther gets so upset. Indulgences, of course, are if you pay money, you or your relative gets out of purgatory faster. Uh, Leo X was the Pope. Uh, he was busy building St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. He needed money to do that. The indulgence system was this endless stream of revenue that conned poor people out of their money to pay for beautiful buildings in Rome. Uh, Leo X is the one that excommunicates Martin Luther. Uh, after that excommunication in 1520, we have in 1521 then Luther summoned to the Diet of Worms, the Diet being a, not just a church council, but being a secular council, an imperial council. And so Charles V, who is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he had just become the emperor a couple years earlier when his dad Maximilian died. And Charles V was a young man at this time in his 20s. And he was there at the Diet of Worms where Luther gave an account where he famously said, here I stand, I can do no other. And uh, as a result of that, he was denounced as a notorious heretic. Luther left the Diet of Worms. He had been protected by Frederick the Wise, Frederick of Saxony, Frederick III of Saxony. And Frederick actually arranged for Luther to be kidnapped, quote-unquote, and taken to the Wartburg Castle so that he could be kept safe from those who would want to harm him. It was at the Wartburg Castle where he assumed the pseudonym Junker Jorg, means Squire George, and for about 10 months he translated the New Testament from Greek into German while he was here at the castle in Wartburg. Meanwhile, back in Wittenberg, his fellow colleague, Andreas Karlstadt, was making additional reforms, being more radical in the reforms than Luther had been, such that when Luther got back to Wittenberg, Luther kicked Andreas Karlstadt out of Wittenberg, and Luther did so in part by preaching a number of sermons called the Invocavit Sermons, where he condemned the radical reformers like Karlstadt, and he also lumped Karlstadt in with the Zwickau prophets, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Yes, Daniel. Junker George. Uh, yeah, well, Junker Jorg, uh, Junker George would be, of course, the English way to pronounce it. Um, it means Squire George in German, and Squire George was the kind of pseudonym, the false name that Luther took for himself while he was in hiding in the Wartburg Castle. Uh, Katie von Bora, Catherine von Bora, was the nun 
who was smuggled out of a nunnery along with some of her fellow nuns in fish barrels by Luther and his associates. And uh, then they were paired up and married. And uh, Katie eventually is married to Martin Luther. So Luther takes a wife, Catherine von Bora, and they had a, a great relationship, which we talked about during that lecture. Uh, the Peasant Revolt was incited by the Zwickau prophets and also by a man named Thomas Muntzer, who we'll talk about a little bit more later, who went around in Germany thinking that the Reformation provided a platform for social upheaval and revolution. And so they taught the peasants that, look, we should all be communists. And uh, the aristocracy, the nobility, uh, we should take all of their possessions and share it all equally. And we need to overthrow the entire system. And Luther condemned the peasant revolt very harshly. This was 1524, 1525, right in that period of time. Yep. Yes, Thomas Muntzer and the Zwickau Prophets, which the Zwickau Prophets, Nicholas Stork, Marcus Stubner, and other radical preachers at that time. Uh, the Diet of Augsburg, uh, there were several Diets of Augsburg, but this one that's significant is the one in 1530 where Charles V decided, hey, I need to stop fighting the Protestants and start cooperating with them so that together we can fight the Muslim Turks who are threatening our southeastern borders. And so there was peace made within the Holy Roman Empire between Lutherans and Catholics. And it was at that Diet of Augsburg that Melanchthon presented the Augsburg Confession which was essentially the initial charter summary of Lutheran theology. So unlike the 95 Theses, which was just a response to indulgences, the Augsburg Confession becomes really the charter document of Lutheranism. Consubstantiation was Luther's view of the Lord's table, which taught, unlike transubstantiation, that it was not a physical transformation of the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ, but nonetheless, that there was a real presence in those elements that the person of Christ was above and below and beside and beneath and pretty much any other preposition you want to apply somehow connected to the um, elements in communion. Luther's catechism, he wrote to train ignorant lay people and children. He has both a shorter and a longer catechism. He considered it one of his most important works, and it was for the purpose of educating people in theology. The Bondage of the Will was Luther's response to Erasmus's book, The Freedom of the Will. This was Calvinism before Calvin, and one of the most important books in church history on the doctrine of total depravity. Of course, it's not really original with Luther. Luther got his ideas from Augustine, who got his ideas from the Apostle Paul. Formula of Concord, 50 years after the Augsburg Confession, which was 1530. So in 1580, uh, two, um, uh, well, a group of Lutherans, including a man named Martin Chemnitz, uh, got together and uh, published a document that brought all of the earlier Lutheran teachings together and summarized them. And it's called the Formula of Concord because it brought Concord, um, brought harmony 
to all of the various Lutheran groups that had kind of developed at that point in history. Uh, we didn't talk about it a lot in this class, but it will show up on the exam as a potential answer, so you need to know what it is. Uh, and then the Council of Trent, uh, which actually is really an important thing, though we don't talk about it as much in this class. The Council of Trent started in the 1540s. I believe it was around 1544, 43, 45, right in there when it started. And it lasts for actually 20 years because it's interrupted by some wars. So from mid-1540s to the mid-1560s, uh, this is the Catholic Church's response to the Reformation. It is what we call the Counter-Reformation. And uh, the Council of Trent, in very, very clear terms, denunciated, excommunicated, anathematized, and condemned any and all Protestant beliefs. So the Council of Trent is uh, what Catholics today try and say didn't really happen whenever they talk to evangelical Protestants. And uh, in some, to some degree, uh, the Second Vatican Council softened the language of the Council of Trent. All right, any questions about the Lutheran Reformation? Yep. I just have a little comment. Sorry to interrupt you. No, comments are welcome. I have a friend that actually uh, was Protestant. We both you know, did some ministry together. He's now being catechized uh, into the Roman Catholic Church. And so talking through him, talking to him through this, issue he basically said you're anathematizing me um and i kind you know we're talking about galatians one you know another gospel as well it is another gospel so the implications are there you know it's anathema i didn't do it you know it's not me but then i thought later on i go oh man like, he anathematizes me like, you know what i mean like i'm anathema to him he's really truly um uh consistent in roman catholic theology yeah, the Council of Trent anathematized anyone who was not Roman Catholic. And then the Second Vatican Council said, well, there are good people outside of the visible Roman Catholic Church who are saved, including, including unreached people groups who have never heard, including religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, and including Protestants. And so when you ask Catholics, how is that possible, since councils can't contradict each other, how is it possible that one council contradicts another council? <laughs> um, and they, they do all sorts of weird bungee jumping to make it work. So the answer that I've been told before is, well, um, anyone who ultimately gets to heaven will be saved through the sacrament of the Catholic Church, whether they visibly belong to the Catholic Church or not. And uh, in my mind, that's a whole, that's just a semantic shell game to try and harmonize two councils that are obviously not harmonizable. I'm not sure that's a word, but. What I've heard, if you're a former Catholic, then you are anathema if you left the Catholic Church and become a Protestant. And so even in, with all that twisting of their, their own councils, I'm a former Roman Catholic. So I guess. In their view, if I didn't really understand the teaching, then I might be okay, but that's arguable. Yeah, well, that's where we're thankful for the authority of Scripture and not the authority of human tradition. So, you don't have anything to worry about. Yep, Cameron. Just that Council of Trent thing is, is um, how you said people try to underplay it now. I, I discovered that um, 
couple of years ago, there, when I was in Denmark, and there was a very, very prominent Catholic teacher who was teaching in Catholic churches and evangelical church. Mm. And I wrote to him privately and asked him where he stood on justification. He didn't want to answer it. So I then went public with the question, say he doesn't want to answer this question. He said, you're, you're just trying to make, you know, I said, I just want you to say where you stand. You can't have it both ways. And then one of my best friends leapt to his defense. There was a Christian guy, a good friend, I just couldn't believe it, but he defended this guy and he said, Cameron, the Council of Trent, it's not that important to these guys. I said, if it's not that important, then he can just reject it and say he doesn't believe it. And then he said, don't be ridiculous. If he says it's wrong, then he can't be a Catholic anymore. So it was just ridiculous that this whole circular, yeah. it's not important, but it is important. And, and I just can't get anywhere. It was ridiculous. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, it is it is a inherent contradiction within the Catholic system. Yep. Um, what what uh, was the Augsburg Confession? Yeah, the Augsburg Confession was the 1530 document that was put together by Melanchthon. Luther was still alive at that point, so he had significant influence in it as well. But Luther didn't go down to the Diet of Augsburg. Melanchthon went and presented it. It was a summary really a theological summary of what Lutherans believed. It was presented to Charles V, and uh, then it was accepted as this is a now um, accepted form of Christianity within the Holy Roman Empire. And it was Charles V, he was just making peace with the Lutherans because he wanted to um, have Protestant soldiers fight in his armies uh, against the the common enemy of the Muslim Turks. Um, now, eventually there's going to be a lot of wars in Germany over Protestantism versus Catholicism, but at least for a little bit there's some tenuous peace. Okay, let's go on to the Zwinglian Reformation. Ulrich Zwingli, of course, you should know. Thomas Wittenbach. Thomas Wittenbach was a professor at the University of Basel. He was a humanist who had been influenced by Desiderius Erasmus. And when Zwingli studied at the University of Basel, he was introduced to Erasmus's work through Wittenbach's influence. The city of Zurich is where Zwingli ultimately ends up in 1519. He comes to Zurich as a preaching pastor and then eventually, or as a preaching priest, I suppose, in the great minister church there in Zurich. Two years later, he becomes the head pastor of that church. And it was there that he preached verse by verse through the New Testament. The 67 articles were a summary of reformed belief. When we talk about reformed as a denomination, it really starts with Zwingli. And so uh, reformed belief, uh, these 67 articles were presented at the first disputation where Zwingli is convincing the Zurich City Council to stop being Catholic and start being Protestant. And so he lays out what it is that Protestants believe, and he lays out all the reasons why the City Council of Zurich should stop listening and obeying a guy in Italy and start being independent and Protestant. Uh, the Bishop of Constance was the Roman Catholic bishop who was 
uh, over that part of Switzerland, and so he certainly opposed Zwingli's attempts to make to make Zurich Protestant. And Johann Faber was actually the Catholic monk who was sent by the Bishop of Constance to kind of defend Catholicism at that first disputation. And Zwingli soundly defeated his opponent, and the Zurich City Council started to initiate reforms after that first disputation. The second disputation was held just a little bit later that year. There were 600 who came to the first disputation. There were 900 who attended the second disputation. And after the second disputation is when uh, Zwingli really started to be aggressive in the reforms that he made there in the city of Zurich. Taking out the icons, replacing the altars with simple communion tables, and even going so far as to take all the musical instruments out of the church. The disputation against the Anabaptists, of course, was when Zwingli debated some of his former students on the issue of believer's baptism versus infant baptism. Zwingli represented infant baptism, and the Anabaptists represented believer's baptism. The Anabaptists ultimately lost the debate. I think they had better arguments, but the city council was the one that decided who won and who lost. And as a result of this, they eventually would be their teachings would be outlawed in Zurich and they would be persecuted as a result. Heinrich Bullinger was the successor of Ulrich Zwingli. And Bullinger, we didn't get to that part of the PowerPoint when we were talking about Zwingli, but Bullinger was very, very influential as a second generation leader of the Reformation. He was kind of a, um, a communications hub of the Reformation in that second generation. He had a significant network of letter writing where people would send letters to Bullinger and Bullinger would dispatch them to other reformers. So Zurich became kind of the communication central, the central post for the Reformation in that second generation. The Marburg Colloquy was in 1529 held at the or hosted by Philip of Hesse, who's listed there next, a nobleman who had been influenced by um, Protestant ideas and wanted to see Luther and Zwingli get on the same page. And so the Marburg Colloquy was Zwingli meeting with Luther, the kind of the founder of Lutheranism and the founder of the Reformed denomination, meeting together. They agree on everything except the Lord's table. And the disagreement was so sharp on that one issue that it ultimately divides those two movements into two denominations. And so whereas Luther held to consubstantiation, Zwingli holds to a memorial view, which is to say that this is there's no miraculous transformation of these elements that takes place. It's not a mystical thing. It is a memorial. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Jacob Kaiser was a Protestant missionary from Zurich who started preaching and evangelizing in some of the other Swiss cantons, specifically Catholic cantons, and he was arrested and burned at the stake. And uh, this was part of what incited the Wars of Capel. There were two Wars of Capel. And these wars were fought between the Protestant canton of Zurich and some of the surrounding Catholic cantons. 
and ultimately Zwingli himself is killed in the Second War of Capel. Um, he was a he went out as a chaplain for the troops, but he went out with a sword in hand. So he was certainly a fighting chaplain. He was not a non-combatant, and ultimately he was killed. Yes, Daniel. Uh, talk Philip of Hesse. Yeah, Philip of Hesse was the, uh, he was a nobleman uh, in Germany uh, who arranged for Luther and Zwingli to meet and who hosted then their meeting, and that meeting is known as the Marburg Colloquy of 1529. Yep, Tucson. Thomas uh, Wittenbach, I missed him. Yeah, Thomas, uh, it looks like Wittenbach or Wittenbach, um, he was the professor at the University of Basel who introduced Zwingli to the teachings of Erasmus. And those teachings, that emphasis on humanism, that love for the original language of scripture was going to have a huge impact on Zwingli when he started as a priest in Glarus and then in Einsiedeln and then eventually in Zurich. And as he's preaching verse by verse through the New Testament, he's using the Greek as his basis to do that. Yep. Johann Faber was the Roman Catholic priest who was sent to represent Catholicism in the first disputation, and so was sent, in essence, to debate with Zwingli, and who was soundly defeated by Zwingli in that first disputation. Okay. All right, the radical reformers. Uh, we spent a whole lecture on these guys. Caspar Schwenkfeld was a spiritual mystic. And uh, there's still a group of Schwenkfelders today in Pennsylvania. And um, one of the reformers who's kind of associated with uh, some of the mystical craziness that Luther and others condemned uh, that characterized some of these radicals. Andreas Karlstadt, we've already talked about, so we'll skip over him. Ulrich von Hutten was the one who led the Knights' Revolt in the early 1520s. He was a follower of Luther, and he wanted to use the Reformation to spark something of a revolution, not quite to the same extreme as some of the other communists, but uh, he was one who wanted the Knights to revolt. He's ultimately defeated. The Zwickau prophets, uh, including Nicholas Stork, and Martin, excuse me, Marcus, Marcus Stubner, Stork and Stubner, uh, these guys uh, went around and preached revolution to the peasants and helped to incite the peasants' revolt. They were part of the problem when Luther was in Wartburg Castle. They were part of the problem with the Reformation there in Wittenberg, and Luther kicked them out when he got back. Karlstadt was much less radical than the Zwickau prophets, but Luther always kind of lumped him in with them and never forgave him for what he did when Luther was gone. Uh, Melchior Hoffman was uh, one of these radicals who uh, began to make predictions about the return of Christ and the establishment of the New Jerusalem. Hoffman taught that the New Jerusalem was going to be established in Strasbourg. And, um, and then one of his disciples, Jan Mathis, 
is the one who runs around and says that the New Jerusalem is going to be established in Münster, Germany. This is in the 1530s. Thomas Münster was uh, also influential in the Peasants' Rebellion, 1524-1525. He's eventually killed. Well, he's arrested, tortured, and killed. Uh, but he preached communism to the extent that when East Germany was still communist, there was a statue in East Germany to Thomas Munzer as an early architect of communist ideas. John von Leiden was the political sidekick to Jan Mathis, and together they took over the city of Munster, Germany. So Thomas Munzer dies in 1525. The Munster Rebellion, which is not connected to his last name, is connected to the city of Munster, Germany, uh, took place 10 years later in 1534. And so we have Jan Mathis and John von Leiden who take over the city. All sorts of crazy stuff happens there, or at least is rumored to happen there. And they claim it to be the New Jerusalem. Eventually, they are a, the city is taken back by Catholic and Protestant forces. And uh, both Mathis and von Leiden are killed. And uh, in John von Leiden's case, he claimed to be a descendant of David, the Davidic throne, all sorts of craziness. Um, his body is left to rot in a cage on the side of the castle as a deterrent to anybody else who would try to do that. Uh, that kind of political revolutionary mindset that was associated with the radical reformers at this time tainted very negatively the reputation of all Anabaptists and it was Menno Simons who really gains leadership of the movement in Germany after the Münster Rebellion and he takes the Anabaptist movement of Germany and makes it a pacifist movement in order to distance itself from its really ugly beginnings. Uh, in Switzerland the Swiss Brethren uh, consist of the students of Zwingli. Those students would be George Blaurock, Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel. Uh, those three men were involved in the disputation against the Anabaptists. They were involved in the baptism that took place just a few, year, few days later. And um, so George Blaurock uh, was the first to be baptized. And Felix Mons... Um, was it Felix Mons who was the one who performed the first baptism? I believe so. I, I need to go back and check. But uh, you have in that PowerPoint on the Swiss Brethren the specifics about those three men. Blaurock, Mons, and Grebel. Eberly Bolt, who I skipped over, was the first Anabaptist martyr in the city of Zurich. So when the Zurich City Council... Uh, condemned the Anabaptists and uh, began to prosecute them. Eberly Bolt was the first to be um, the first to be drowned. Balthasar Hubmeier was an Austrian preacher who came to Zurich and uh, also was an Anabaptist leader. He and Zwingli uh, went round and round. It actually had some pamphlet wars, kind of an early iteration of a blog war, I suppose, where they published negative pamphlets about each other. He was arrested in Zurich. Eventually, he was freed and left. He went back to Austria and was burned at the stake there by Catholic forces.
Menno Simons we mentioned, and Michael Sattler, that name should sound familiar to you because he was the one that Stephen Nichols wrote about in the, the book on the Reformation that you read. He was the one who was arrested and killed in the city of Rottenburg, which is aptly named. Because if you're going to go to a place called Rottenburg, you might get treated in a bad way. All right, so uh, any questions about the radical reformers? Obviously, with some of these, you're going to have to dig back into the PowerPoints and find some of these details on your own. Yes, Daniel. Yes, the Munster Rebellion was in uh, Munster or Munster, Germany, and it was there that these Anabaptists under John von Leiden and Jan Mathis took over the city, declared it to be the New Jerusalem, uh, and according to their enemies, um, they did all sorts of horrific things there, like practice uh, communism, including a communistic form of polygamy and other things. Um, so immorality and all sorts of um, crazy and questionable things were taking place there. And uh, it was stamped out by Catholic and Protestant forces in 1535. Um, it left such a negative reputation on the entire Reformation, really, but especially the Anabaptist movement, that monarchs all over Europe began to tighten things down and really persecute the Anabaptists. It was the reason why John Calvin wrote his Institutes, to make it clear that the French Protestants were not Anabaptists like the crazy revolutionaries at Münster, Germany. Was there a difference uh, between where Hoffman and his disciples said was to be the New Jerusalem? Were the differences the same? Yeah, Hoffman picked Strasbourg. Mathis picked Münster. Um, at some point, it should have dawned on somebody that Jerusalem is really the only candidate for the New Jerusalem. But, in any case... So if any of you have ideas for the San Fernando Valley, it is not the New Jerusalem. I'll just make that clear. All right, the Reformation in Geneva. John Calvin, um, <clears throat> born in 1509 and published his Institutes in 1536, eventually would have several iterations of those, um, came to Geneva, he was convinced to stay there by William Farrell, who put a potential curse on Calvin if he wouldn't stay. Um, Nicholas Kopp was one of his friends at uh, the university in, there in Paris. And uh, Kopp was one of the early French Protestants. And uh, Kopp's preaching began to ignite persecution against the Protestants, which is why Calvin fled from France and ended up in Basel. This is all before he went to Geneva. It was while he was in Basel that he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was really an apologetic to the King of France. Hey, stop persecuting us. We're not a threat to you. William Farrell was the very, very passionate, fiery reformer who went around and converted a number of the Swiss cantons to Protestantism. He was the one who convinced Calvin to stay in Geneva. Martin Bootser was up in Strasbourg, and uh, when Calvin and Farrell were kicked out of Geneva in 1538, they went to Strasbourg, 
and uh, Calvin led the French refugee church there until 1541 when he returned to Geneva. Uh, Pharrell eventually went to a place called Neuchâtel, uh, so he didn't go back to Geneva with Calvin. Uh, Wolfgang Capito was kind of the sidekick of Bootser. You don't really need to know him for the exam. Uh, he's there because he's going to show up as a potential option. And I always felt bad introducing things you hadn't seen before as potential options, so I, I put him there. Uh, he, he actually was significant. Both Bootser and Capito were significant in their attempts to unify Zwingli with Luther. Bootser also has the added mark of distinction for being present at the Leipzig debates where he heard Luther defeat Eck. That was really the catalyst in his own uh, leaving of the Catholic Church and embracing Protestantism. And Bootser also met with Thomas Cranmer, who was the architect of the English Reformation. So Bootser was influential with Luther, he was influential with Calvin, and he was influential with the English Reformation. So a, a lesser known individual when we talk about Reformation studies who was working behind the scenes and very influential in, in all three branches of Anglican, Lutheran, and Reformed movements. Strasbourg, Idolette de Bure was the widow who Calvin met there in Strasbourg, and uh, they got married. They were married for nine years. Uh, they did have one son who died in infanthood. Uh, she had two children from her previous marriage, and Calvin adopted them as his own. The reason they were only married for nine years was that she died, and Calvin was uh, very, very sad when his wife died after only nine years of marriage. The consistory was the church council that Calvin established when he returned to Geneva after 1541. The city council, or the Council of 200 as it's sometimes called, was the real authority in Geneva, and it was different than the consistory, which was the church council, which had only ecclesiastical authority. Pierre Amo was one who had criticized Calvin, and the city council punished him by making him walk around the city and publicly beg for forgiveness. Uh, this was some of the things that started to turn the libertines against Calvin. Ami Perrin was the leader of the libertines. He was the one who was convicted of violating Geneva's no dancing policy. And that again was part of the reason that the libertines began to turn against John Calvin. The libertines eventually gained control of the city council. And for about 10 years, they make life really, really miserable for their pastor. Calvin tries to resign and they refuse to let him leave. Michael Servetus, of course, was the anti-Trinitarian rationalist who was arrested in France, would have been killed there, but he escaped, showed up in Geneva, denounced as a heretic, put on trial. The Geneva City Council stretched the trial out as long as possible, mainly to try and embarrass Calvin. Ultimately, the Geneva City Council determined that he needed to die, and they burned him at the stake as a heretic, and we talked about all of that in this class. Theodore Beza. If Melanchthon is Luther's sidekick and successor, if Bullinger is Zwingli's sidekick and successor, Beza is Calvin's sidekick and successor. He was the one who oversaw the academy there in Geneva and is also, in the minds of many scholars, credited with articulating some of the things that we associate with the five points of Calvinism, even though uh, 
they are all things that Calvin taught and believed. He just didn't systematize them in the way that we often think of when we think of Calvinism. John Knox was the Scottish reformer who was in Geneva from 1559, uh, from 1556 to 1559, highly influenced by Calvin, took Calvinism back to Scotland, and the result was what we call Presbyterianism. And we talked a bit about John Knox at the end of class on Tuesday. And the spiritual presence view is the is really Calvin's view of communion, the idea that Christ is spiritually present in his church and therefore spiritually present when the Lord's table is celebrated. Calvin and Bullinger met together to discuss communion and they agreed that their two views, the memorial view and the spiritual presence view, were really compatible views. And so today when we talk about the Reformed view of communion, we say that it is the memorial view, but we certainly recognize that Christ is spiritually present because he is omnipresent in his church. William Tyndale, early uh, Bible translator, translated the Bible into English, the New Testament into English from the Greek, using Erasmus's Greek, critical Greek text, and also influenced by Luther, uh, he also translated a few portions of the Old Testament from the Hebrew. And um, he was very critical of Henry VIII when Henry VIII got an annulment from Catherine of Aragon. And remember, we talked about all of that last time. And so uh, also it was illegal to translate the Bible at that time into English. He was eventually arrested and then burned at the stake. His dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That king was Henry VIII, who in the 1530s wanted an annulment from his wife, Catherine of Aragon. The Pope said no for political reasons, so Henry said, fine, I'll divorce you if you won't let me divorce my wife. So he divorced the Catholic Church, and the Church of England was born, and the English Reformation began, a reformation of convenience rather than conviction, like we talked about on Tuesday. Uh, I gave you the wrong date on Tuesday. I know none of you care about dates, but I care since I'm being videotaped. <laughs> um, it was in 1534, 1534, that Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, which announced that Henry was now the supreme head of the Church of England, which officially separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. I had said 1538 on Tuesday, but 1534 was the Act of Supremacy. There will be a second Act of Supremacy in 1559 when Elizabeth is uh, named the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. But in any case, 1534 is the date that we look at as the beginning of the English Reformation because that's the date of the Act of Supremacy. Thomas Cromwell was the chief minister under Henry VIII who was, uh, had Protestant leanings, and he was eventually executed. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII. He was the one who granted the annulment to Henry for his marriage to Catherine, and he had very strong Protestant leanings, though those leanings uh, were not really manifested during Henry's lifetime, but during his son Edward's lifetime, Thomas Cranmer was able to publish the 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayer, the decades, the, the 52 sermons, and so he provided the English church with a theology, a liturgy, and a set of sermons that could be preached.
He eventually be killed by Bloody Mary. Catherine of Aragon was the first wife of Henry VIII. Her marriage to him was annulled when she did not produce a male heir. She gave birth to Mary. Anne Boleyn was the second wife of Henry VIII. She was Protestant. She was killed uh, not long after they had been married and uh, executed by Henry. She gave birth also to a daughter, and that daughter's name was Elizabeth. Jane Seymour was the third wife of Henry VIII. She finally gave birth to a son. That son's name was Edward, and Jane Seymour died uh, shortly after giving birth to Edward. Henry would be married three more times, and it didn't go well for any of his wives. Edward VI was the son who became king about age nine, the boy king of England. And during his reign, uh, he was the son of Jane Seymour during his reign under the guardianship of his uncle. Thomas Cranmer was liberated, really, to enact all of the Protestant reforms in the church that he could. Those Protestant reforms only lasted for six years, however, because Edward died at a very young age, uh, about 15 years old. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer we mentioned. Mary was the daughter of Catherine when she came to the throne after Edward died. She did everything in her power to stamp out the Protestant Reformation, killed uh, hundreds of Protestant leaders. Many other thousands of Protestants fled to mainland Europe where they were influenced by the Reformed movement there. She was known as Bloody Mary. She reigned for five years. When she died, her sister, half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne. Elizabeth was Protestant. Elizabeth then reigned for over 40 years, and Protestantism really took hold. Elizabeth had Parliament pass the Act of Uniformity, which uh, essentially laid the foundation for Anglicanism as a Protestant English church that had an Episcopalian form of church government. It had a Lutheran slash Catholic form of high church liturgy. And it had a Reformed slash Zwinglian form of soteriological theology. So the act of uniformity brought it all together. And it required that everybody go to, well, the acts of uniformity and then the act of conformity uh, require that everybody go to Anglican church service every week. Uh, the Puritans are the folks who flee under Bloody Mary, get influenced by the Reformed movement in Europe, and then come back to England, and they want to see the church purified. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about them in the upcoming weeks. Richard Hooker was mentioned in Olson's textbook as being really one of the main theological architects of Anglicanism. And Hugh Latimer uh, was one of the early reformers in England. He was a famous preacher. He actually was one who famously confronted Henry VIII to his face. Pretty <laughs> incredible thing to do. Um, he had met with some early guys before the Reformation even took uh, shape. He had met at the White Horse Tavern. Uh, ultimately, Hugh Latimer will be killed along with Nicholas Ridley by Bloody Mary. So they are, uh, Thomas Cranmer also killed by Bloody Mary. All right, that brings us to the end of our class. So I'm going to leave the final section on Verduin's book for you to look up in Verduin's book. But essentially, these labels are derogatory labels for the most part that were applied, usually unfairly, but applied to Anabaptists 
and used as a way in which Anabaptists could be persecuted by not only the magisterial reformers, but also by the Roman Catholic Church. 